Good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Psalm 63. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's uh, page 479, Psalm 63. I want to give credit to uh, Scott Sauls as a pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. I heard him preach a sermon on this psalm, uh, and his thoughts were very uh, influential, and I'm relying heavily on those this morning, so I wanted to give credit there. Uh, And I also want to look at the setting of this psalm and kind of interweave that into how we understand what it is that David's writing. If you look there, the subscript of the psalm, we read that it's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, and we'll get a little bit more specific in a moment. The turn of uh, this century, uh, 16 years ago, you could have surveyed the landscape of the economy and you would have seen that there was nothing quite, uh, that in, nothing quite encapsulated kind of the economic boom and abundance of the 90s quite like the company, uh, the corporation Enron. Uh, in 2000, they claimed $111 billion in revenues. But as uh, most of us are aware of the story, in 2001, December of 2001, they filed for bankruptcy, and that bankruptcy case set off one of the most complex bankruptcy cases in history. So looking at it from the outside, Enron was the pinnacle of American success and innovation. But as that bankruptcy case revealed, on the inside there was a multitude of A vile, rotten mess. There's something similarly haunting uh, when you read through the David story. Something that kind of pops up time and again when you look at David and other characters throughout the story. That you can be at the height of personal or professional success, yet be completely empty inside. Or at least filled with nothing good But conversely, and we especially see this with David at times, is that you can uh, be in the midst of terrible circumstances, yet be emotionally full. I think we see that in this psalm. If you're familiar with the David story, when you read through it and you get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you see that David had everything. He had peace, he had wealth, he had a kingdom that was thriving. He had everything. But what we see in the incident with Bathsheba, is that he was an empty shell inside. He had lost something on the inside that he had once had, and nothing on the outside was filling it or satisfying it. And the setting of this psalm is one of the saddest accounts in all of Scripture, and especially the David story, that David is once again in the wilderness, once again in the desert, once again on the run, once again in fear of his life and future. And it's all at the hands of his own son, Absalom. As Absalom has risen up against him and forced him into exile. And so you think about the setting of that story, and especially the fact that it's at the hands of his own son. What would you expect? What what would be the kinds of things that you would expect David to say? In prayer, especially, as it comes to us in Psalm 63. Because on the outside, David's life is miserable, But when we read through the psalm, we start seeing some of the kinds of things that sound a lot like the David that we most often think of. How is that? How can he write some of the things that he writes here in this psalm and mean them? 
Eugene Peterson puts it well. He says about David that it's in the wilderness. It's in suffering where David, we find David time and again, closest to God and the most fully alive. I want to look at that in this psalm this morning. Let's read, if you would, read with me here Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon You in the sanctuary beholding Your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray before we look into it. Our Father, we come to you, and many of us, Father, perhaps are coming to you in the wilderness, feeling as if we're dry and empty shells of what we once were. We pray that you would fill us with your grace and your truth, that this would be your word and you speaking to us through it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Think about psalms and uh, most spiritual songs, and I love this uh, definition of psalms. But the beauty of the psalms is that they are expressions in words of inward spiritual realities. And the psalms can be very honest about those inward realities, and sometimes they're very dark, and there's a hint of that here, and we're going to look into it. But they're expressions in words of inward spiritual realities. And this psalm, like many, they help, they help us take our spiritual pulse. And so what I want to see in this psalm is four signs of what is a spiritual soul. How can we see, how can we identify where our soul is anchored? And I think there's four things in this psalm that we can look at to at least begin answering that question. The first one I want to look at is what he begins this psalm with in in verse 1, is a thirsty soul. David says he has a thirsty soul in verse 1. My soul thirsts for you and my flesh faints for you. So David's initial assessment of his circumstances and his inward spiritual state is one of spiritual thirst. And he's in the wilderness, we know, and obviously this is an apt illustration that he's using as he's in the wilderness, as he looks at his physical and his tangible circumstances and says that they're a living illustration to the spiritual reality that he's living in. But when he begins thinking about it and then putting words to it, he doesn't talk about his physical circumstances. He talks about them as if they they merely serve to point. They serve as symbols of the state of his soul. 
He's spiritually thirsty. And so the, the question, obviously, as we get a, a little general context at the beginning of the psalm, what is it that has brought him here? What is it that has brought David to this place? And we find it in the Absalom story. Uh, it's a story that tr- stretches over seven chapters. If you read through the David story, it stretches over seven chapters, Second Samuel 13 through 19. It's one of the most foundational stories of the David story. You cannot understand the life of David apart from the Absalom story. And he's living it out as direct consequence of his sin and got, when God promised him that the sword would never leave from his house. So here's just a a fly-by-night overview of what we find in the story that has brought David to this point. In chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, we're introduced to Absalom by being told that he had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And another one of David's sons, Amnon, loved Tamar. And he burned after her, we're told, and he schemes and he ends up violating her. And so Absalom stews in anger for two years before setting up the perfect revenge when he invites all his brothers out to a feast and in the middle of them all, he slays his brother in revenge. Chapter 14, we read that Absalom flees into exile for three years for what he's done. And finally, David is convinced to bring him back into Jerusalem and back into the fold. But we also read there that for two whole years he lives there without ever coming into the presence of David. As David harbors ill will and hard-heartedness towards his son for what he's done, there's no reconciliation. Chapter 15, we read that Absalom uh, begins to make himself look kingly. He gets an entourage of chariots to go around with him everywhere he goes. He sits at the gate and hears men's cases. And in chapter 2 Samuel 15, verse 6, we read this, And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Again, that's a fly-by-night overview, but track with me what happens here through this story. David's son Amnon craved his sister, and he fed it. He ends up violating her. Absalom craved revenge, and he fed his hate, and he ends up murdering his brother. David fed his hard-heartedness towards Absalom and refuses reconciliation, and Absalom craves the kingdom. And so he rises up and he takes it. If you're familiar with the David story, what it is is actually something we've seen before. It's sin feeding sin and leaving a pathway of destruction in its wake. And you remember it all started in 2 Samuel 11. It all started with a lazy afternoon on the couch on a roof which fed a look, which fed a desire, which fed an action, which fed a transgression, which fed a cover-up, which led to a murder, all at the hands of the anointed one, David. And at the outset of Psalm 63, it's now. It's now that David understands and puts words to it. It's now that David sees clearly his spiritual condition. He sees where his heart has been the whole time as he's in the desert receiving the just deserts of his sin. David sees his thirsting for what it has been all along, a thirst which only God could satisfy. The return of his crown wouldn't satisfy it. Returning to the throne wouldn't satisfy it. Returning to peace wouldn't satisfy it. Only God. So he says, I thirst for you. You're what I need. You remember Jesus, you know, when the subject of spiritual thirst comes up, maybe uh, you're like me and your mind wanders to John chapter 4. 
when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. And he tells her this. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And so the woman's blown away, but she's a bit confused. And so she asks for this water, and she's saying, give me that water. I'll never have to come back to this well ever again. You remember what Jesus says? He says, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, you're right. You've had five. And the man you're with now isn't your husband. And we read that, and if you just read it by yourself, you're like, man, Jesus was a little brutal with the truth sometimes, right? But you see what he was doing. She hears about living water, and she thinks she's won free water for life. And Jesus says, no, I'm talking about the thirst of your soul, which you have been running to men your whole life to fill. See, you and I, we have this insatiable appetite for the things of God. The author of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes 3.11 puts it like this, that God has put eternity into our hearts. And the sad thing about us is that we spend our entire lives going to things that do not last to fill an eternity-sized hole. We find ourselves thirsty again and again and again. Shia LaBeouf is a, a young actor who has been somewhat successful, but he's had a rocky personal life. And he said this in an interview in Parade Magazine. He says this. He said, I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days don't think that they're worthy. And I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it, and I'd be on my way. And that's so sad how he sees so clearly what's happening. But he doesn't know the solution. And the thing is, this is David saying that he's spiritually thirsty. This is the anointed one, the man after God's own heart who had had a living and vibrant relationship with his God. He went and faced a giant as a young teen. He was so confident in God and who he was in God. Yet it's that same David we find now in the wilderness after all these years of success. Saying, I'm thirsty. Because we Christians, we're not immune to this. We find ourselves often like the Israelites in the wilderness in Exodus over and over again looking at God and saying, would that we were back in Egypt. And we read that and we say, how in the world could they say that? Because we keep running to the same empty wells over and over and over again. The first sign of seeing where your soul is anchored has to be seeing your thirst and finding what you're trying to quench it with. Let's go on to see how we do that. The second thing I want to see comes in verse 8. We see a clinging soul in verse 8. A clinging soul. David says, my soul clings to you. It's the same word uh, used in Genesis 2 when Eve is created and we're told that the two would cling together. They would hold fast to one another, right? What do we, what do we call someone that's very needy, right? Or someone in, we're in a relationship with that's very needy or we call a little child that's very needy. What do we call them? We call them clinging, right? David's saying, this is my soul. It clings to you. I need you. David is making... Uh, making clear for us that he is love-struck for God. He is needy for God. He clings to him. In verse 3, he says, your love is better than life. 
Not that your love is life. He says your love is better than life itself. And Scott Saul says is this. He says, you see, the things that we cling to are the things that we believe will give us life. That's why we cling to them. We think they're life-giving. David thought that he could find life in the arms of another man's wife. Amnon thought he could find life in the arms of his sister. Absalom thought he could find life in taking the life of his brother and taking the kingdom from his father. But what we see over and over again in the story is that they all lead to death. Our hearts are prone to cling to idols because we believe that idols will give us life. And we cling to them and we leave a pathway of destruction in our wake. If you want to identify the idols in your life, identify the things that you cannot live without. What are your non-negotiables? If you had to make a list on the spot of what your non-negotiables in life would be, what would they be? What are those things that if you did not have them, you're not quite sure if you could keep on going on? What are those things which maybe God has been gracious enough to show you that when you didn't have them, you thought it wasn't worth going on? What if, I I think about this often because I really don't know what I would do. What if you could not, what if it was not possible for you to work, to keep doing what you've been doing your whole life anymore? What if tomorrow you could no longer do it? What would you do? What if people knew how your marriage really was? What it was really like? How you really talked to each other? What if people really knew how your children behaved at at home? Though they might see it pretty clearly at church. What if everyone knew that I didn't have it all together? That what this is is just a charade. And I'm just trying to hold it together for another day. David fled to the arms of women. And it eventually began to hurt people. Because he thought that was what would give him life. And the only way for God to show him that was to cripple him in his grace. To rip his idols out from underneath him so he could see firsthand the destruction that it was causing. Our idols, eventually, no matter what, they will fail us. And we'll see that all the while we thought they were healing our souls, but really they were shrinking them. What are we clinging to? Well, we get a hint of how David found his way. And the next one is we see a joyful soul. David starts talking about a joyful soul. You look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 7, he says, For you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Verse 11, But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him will exult. You know, this is what's so counterintuitive to us. Like, we know that the Psalms can be very honest about how life is hard, but then when the psalmists kind of flip the page and they just start talking about happy, positive things, we're like, how do they do that? How can they say those things in, in a genuine way? 
Are they just saying that to hope that that makes them feel better? What are they doing? Because David's in the desert. He's suffering. He's been betrayed and overthrown by his own son. This is a monarchy. There's only one way that you secure a throne in a monarchy, and that's by cutting off the former king. And it's in the midst of that that David says, this is when and where and why I will sing for joy. We wonder, how in the world could that be? And what we find out is that what we realize is that at long last, David has found real and God-centered joy. Because God-centered joy is joy that is immune to circumstances. And it's immune to circumstances because it cannot be derived from circumstances. God-centered gospel joy, it flourishes in hard times just as much as in good times because God-centered gospel joy is more solid than both of them because it lasts longer than either of them ever could. Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians, it's, it's sometimes referred to as the epistle of joy. That's a big theme for Paul in that letter. And if you just read through it, you would never know that he's writing it in chains unjustly imprisoned. What is this joy? In verse 4, Paul, uh, David says, I will bless you as long as I live. And the rest of the psalm, he's extolling the attributes of God that he knows will sustain him no matter the circumstances. That's the source of his joy, which leads then to praise. You want to know what you, where your joy is, what you are finding joy in. Look to that which you praise, which you give your words to. You ever notice how God, so often in the Bible, He commands us to praise Him? Uh, our worship services, we begin them every, every week with a call to worship. What is that? That is God Himself calling us to worship Him, commanding us. He is due our worship, our honor, our praise. C.S. Lewis, as only C.S. Lewis can, he reflects on this in his reflection on the Psalms. Because he says he struggled uh, as an early Christian on how he was supposed to genuinely praise God if God commanded it. How am I to genuinely do this if God commands it? And let me let Lewis speak for himself. I love this. The most obvious fact about praise strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their partners, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised the most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised the least. Not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. 
The catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. And in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. It's only C.S. Lewis can. You see, praise is treating something with your words as the treasure that it truly is. God wants us to praise Him not because we need it, not, sorry, not because He needs it, but because He wants us to have the deepest joy that the human heart could possibly have in taking enjoyment, finding joy in our Maker. David had joy. David had life. David had everything. But it was the moment that he forgot where his joy was that everything fell apart. And the point he makes in this psalm is that now I see it. That there is only one place that I could ever find true and everlasting joy. In my God. Final thing I want to see here is a tender soul. A tender soul. There's something that happened in David, through David, around David, that rendered him a tender soul. And it's not quickly obvious, but read verses 9 and 10 with me. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, and they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Now you take that by itself and we're like, well, I thought we were talking about a tender soul. David is comforting himself with the fact that he lives in a world of justice, ruled by a God of justice who is not only willing, but is able to make things right. That's what he's comforting himself with. You know, I... I don't know if you remember, I can't remember how long ago it was that uh, Dr. Baird was with us, but one thing he noted about the culture in his sermon was that everybody's so angry. We are all, we are all so angry. We all have a, different, a bunch of different pet reasons why. But I would suggest to you it's because we're all desperate for someone, for something that can make things right. Because we all have a sense of wrong. We may be wrong about what is wrong, but we all have a sense of it. We're craving for things to be made right, so we're actually desperate for a God who is powerful enough and who will stand up for the oppressed and the wronged and the victims. But here's the thing. If you're familiar with the David story at all, you know that David had not been any mere victim He'd been one of its biggest perpetrators. And here's the thing. He knew that. This isn't a self-righteous cry for justice. This is a pleading the case of the God who makes things right. So we know that David knows God's justice because David knows that it has measured him and found him wanting. He knows that the only reason he even has breath is the grace of God. We see this very vividly in the Absalom story. It's the most heart-wrenching part of the story. In 2 Samuel 18, 
Absalom's rebels are marching out to meet David's loyalists, which is going to be the deciding battle to decide the whole affair. And we read at the beginning of 2 Samuel 18 that David gives these remarkable instructions given the circumstances. He says this, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And the author tells us that all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. As the story goes and as the heat of battle goes, Absalom meets his end. And we find David at the end of the chapter waiting to receive word of what's transpired. And he finally receives word that his son has perished. And we read these words. The king was deeply moved, and he went over to the chamber, over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. And so you see, the whole sad affair ends, but it ends with a paradox. A safe kingdom, but a heartbroken king. This anointed king, time and again we've seen it, a suffering king. And he's shedding tears, but he's shedding tears for his own grief and his own guilt. And what's the beautiful part of the story, and it's like nowhere else in the entire story does David come closer to showing us Jesus. Jesus, the anointed king, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, but he wasn't acquainted with his own grief. He was acquainted with ours. As we read in Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Where is your soul Anchored this morning. Maybe you've never even thought of that question. Where is your soul anchored this morning? What are you thirsting for? What are you clinging to? What do you find joy in? Because the story of the gospel tells us that Jesus knew full well our thirst. He knew full well the kinds of things that we cling to and the things that we look to for joy. And he said, would that I would die instead of you. The thing was, is he followed through with it. Because he could. And because he wanted to. Because he loved us that much. Jesus, the one who had it all. Who willingly lays aside his crown and enters into our wilderness. author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 6.19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner 
on our behalf. Where is your soul anchored this morning? Let us cling to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we're honest, we know all too well the chaos, the tossing, and the uncertainty, and the unsurety of the wilderness. Father, there are days, weeks, even months where it seems where we cannot even come close from getting out of it. Would you show us Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe that we really do have a sure and steadfast anchor that lies completely outside of ourselves? The one who has gone before us. And because he's gone before us, we know with certainty that our lives are hid with him, with you. We thank you for this hope pray that you would give it to us anew this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.